You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we have a snippet from an interview that journalist Karen McCall did with US lobbying whistleblower Wendell Potter. I saw a congressman from my home state of Tennessee being interviewed, um, and he was saying things that it became very clear to me uh, were things that my colleagues and I wrote when I used to work for the health insurance industry. But before that, the anti-drink drive campaign has been particularly successful. Deaths in the UK have halved between 1986 and now, according to the charity Campaign Against Drink Driving. However, other forms of intoxicated driving haven't been nearly as well researched or characterised. A paper published on BMJ.com this week goes some way towards rectifying that. Mark Ashbridge is an Associate Professor at the Department of Community Health and Epidemiology at Dalhousie University in Canada. He and his colleagues have done a systematic review and meta-analysis of acute cannabis consumption and vehicle collision risk. Mark, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you. Now, as I said earlier, uh, anti-drink driving has been pretty successful. So does this mean that stone driving is becoming proportionally more of a problem? Uh, well, I mean, that's, a, that's an important point. Um, part, of the, uh, part of the issue is that we've spent a, a great deal of uh, public health uh, and educational efforts towards drinking and driving, and we simply haven't done the same thing with respect to uh, drugs and driving or cannabis and driving in particular. So we have organizations like and here in North America, we have MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and, and they devote a great deal of time to um, a public awareness and education of the issue. And uh, we just simply haven't seen that for, for, for drug use. And uh, But other jurisdictions have sort of talked about this issue a fair bit. Um, but, you know, part of the issue is we also see, if you look at the rates of um, of driving under the influence of cannabis, in particular amongst young people. In, uh, we have some data in Canada from various provinces. We see that uh, rates of cannabis and driving actually surpass rates of drinking and driving, uh, particularly amongst those under the age of 25. We have uh, reported rates here of between 15 and 20 percent for, for cannabis compared to drinking and driving, which are uh, usually around uh, 10 to 15 percent. So clearly this is a uh, an issue on the rise, and in, in particular amongst young people. So uh, we were hoping that our research would at least bring more attention to the issue of, of uh, cannabis and other drug use in particular in the context of driving and road safety. And so we hope that uh, this can be a, a motivation for greater uh, public health effort. Okay. And so um, could you take us through your, your meta-analysis? Which studies were you looking at and, and then what you found? Well, well, one of the first things um, is what what we know about me the measurement of cannabis in the con conjunction with uh, with the crash is that it's a really a, time really is important here, and a lot of studies had measured use with uh, less precise measures. Many studies had used uh, measures of urine, for instance, and urine uh, is less precise and and depending on whether it measures active or inactive metabolites, but it can only capture. Uh, use uh, often within weeks rather than hours. And so our first uh, goal was to get acute use only. And the, the second thing we wanted to look at in terms of studies was getting studies that included both people involved in crashes that had measures of cannabis as well as those drivers who may not have been involved in a crash to compare prevalence of cannabis in those two populations of drivers. From that, we uh, whittled down the uh, extensive literature to a comfortable number of studies that fit 
these inclusion criteria. From that, we uh, were able to, uh, despite the level of heterogeneity in the studies, we managed to um, to produce a, a meta-analysis uh, of the results. How happy were you with the quality of those studies, with the data in there? Because I know for some of them that there was self-reported cannabis consumption as well. Yeah, one of them included self-reported cannabis consumption. And but this was a unique study in the sense that it was a, a hospital study with cases and controls, and, and their primary measure was self-report. The remainders of the studies did include measures of blood that gave us more precise measures. But we, uh, of course, uh, did a net separate analyses for the studies of what we consider to be higher and lower quality mm. to see if the findings were consistent, and, and, they, and they were consistent, and they were, in fact, uh, the strength of the association was higher for higher quality studies. What we were probably... Um, unhappy with is the overall number of studies and the the nature of the populations that get, that get included in these studies is also limited. Uh, we would have liked to have included a broader range of crash type. We were left largely with studies of fatalities and um, injuries. Mm. And one of the key questions for us is whether the association between cannabis and crash risk persists in um, crashes that don't involve an injury. Um, we would also like to have been able to assess um, dose-response effects, and the data simply not available to do that. Okay. So with those caveats that you've uh, talked about there, um, what did you find when you did your analysis? Our, our main finding is that uh, acute cannabis consumption nearly doubles the risk of, uh, of a traffic crash. And, and uh, this was in uh, the, the combination of studies. We're talking about close to um, over 40,000 individuals included in these nine studies. And so this effect was, uh, was consistent uh, for high and low quality studies and whether they were uh, traditional case control studies or, or uh, modified case control studies, which are called culpability studies. Um, the only um, place where this finding was inconsistent was uh, for um, non-fatal collisions where, uh, where the risk uh, was not was in the right direction, but uh, not significant. So, mm. again, this may speak to the what I mentioned previously about the the need to look at this in in less severe or non-injury crashes to see if it's the same association. So it does double your risk of crashes, it seems. So how does that fit into the hierarchy of uh, other things that that might affect someone's driving, say, alcohol consumption or or sleep deprivation? It, the challenge is, is we have sort of any measure of cannabis, and mm. so it's hard to do a direct comparison without without that uh, quantitative dose-response measure. N- nonetheless, this is still a substantial risk and probably uh, the second most risky um, activity that we have measured here. We have less information on things like sleep, sleep deprivation or even distracted driving, uh, which is becoming an emergent issue. And, uh, and of course, the, the risk associated with the use of other drugs, uh, particularly benzodiazepines or um, opioids yes. or amphetamines. Means, uh, which again, there's a, an emerging uh, literature on in that area as well. Mm, and do you think those are all there for public education? Uh, as a driver, I wasn't aware that you know, th- there were spot tests on on things like cannabis consumption. Uh, if mm. you were, but I was very aware it was on alcohol. So, do you think there's a, a sort of preventative program to be had as well? Um, yeah, the, the problem is that the, the, the technology that we have for testing of drugs is not as well de- developed as there is for alcohol. We have the breathalyzer device, which uh, is quite a, a nice mobile device that can be used for enforcement purposes, and, and there simply isn't something like that f- for drugs. Um, uh, they have oral tests that you can use, swipes that for oral fluid, 
that can give quick tests, but uh, they have had mixed results. In some jurisdictions, Australia is using this, this, this quite a bit. Um, so it often relies on more traditional methods of detecting impairment, either behaviorally, like uh, you know, erratic driving, hmm. uh, that is then um, assessed and confirmed with a biologic sample later. Um, so uh, part of the problem, I guess, in this is, is still need to develop the, the technology and the method for doing something in a mobile roadside manner that we do for alcohol. And your research would seem to suggest that that is necessary to do. Well, Mark, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. And that research article is now available on bmj.com. For 19 years, Wendell Potter was a PR man for the health insurance industry. Now he is one of their strongest critics, particularly of the dark arts they used to try and derail Obama's health reforms. In an interview with journalist Karen McCall, he explains why he feels the need to speak out. I uh, went back home to visit family in East Tennessee, where I grew up, and I uh, read about something called a health care expedition that was being held. I went there out of curiosity, and I saw something I never would have expected to see in the United States, or any developed country for that matter. I saw thousands of people there who were lined up to get care that was being provided uh, by doctors and nurses uh, who were volunteering their time. And, and, and the people were lined up to get care in animal stalls. The companies that I work for were um, engaging in practices that excluded people from coverage. In the U.S., insurance companies are able to refuse to sell insurance coverage to people who have pre-existing conditions. And they are able to um, drop people from coverage once they get sick in many cases. 50 million people in the United States don't have coverage now as a consequence of the practices of the insurance industry. When you'd quit your job, you didn't immediately set out to, to speak out about the industry's tactics, did you? What was it that prompted you to, to speak out? No, it took a while. I uh, was watching television on the, on the very day that President Obama invited people to the White House for a discussion about health care reform. And I saw a congressman from my home state of Tennessee being interviewed, um, and he was saying things that it became very clear to me uh, were things that my colleagues and I wrote when I used to work for the health insurance industry. It was either wittingly or unwittingly a pawn. He was saying that half of the American people who don't have insurance are that way by choice. Uh, and I knew that that was something that uh, the insurance industry was trying to get the American public to believe. The insurance industry did not want the American public to to understand that people are uninsured in this country largely because of the practices of the insurance industry. I was so upset that I decided that I would start speaking out. So that eventually led to me being invited to testify before the U.S. Senate in the early uh, days of the congressional debate on health care reform. And rather than obscuring the truth, as I once did, I'm trying to explain very fully how the insurance industry really operates and how it is largely responsible for the United States having both the most expensive healthcare system in the world, but also one of the most inequitable. I wanted to, to get your perspective really on some of the scandals or 
issues that have arisen in the UK recently about the role of lobbying and lobbyists' influence on the political process. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism did an investigation which was published in The Independent and this highlighted the, uh, the dark arts of spin in public relations and they talked about techniques like inviting clients into the social circles, um, creating and maintaining third-party blogs that appear to be independent, using techniques to, to influence the online presence uh, by editing Wikipedia entries and using search engine optimization to drown out negative con content, and also facilitating access to ministers or being able to get messages to ministers. The investigation wasn't to do with health, but I was interested in your perspective. Yes, when I read the independent article, uh, I was dismayed because clearly uh, the problems that you have in Britain are very similar to the problems that we have. You know, the tools and techniques of public relations are not in and of themselves uh, evil. It is how they are used. And it's very, very hard to regulate that. And I think uh, there's no doubt that the the regulations both uh, of, of lobbying and influence peddling are inadequately uh, regulated in both the U.S. and the U.K. Yeah, I was going to come on to that, and I wondered, you know, what does need to be done to, uh, to address these issues, and are there lessons you think that we in the U.K. could learn from what's being done in the U.S.? I, I think the U.S. has probably done more, from what I understand, than it's been done in the U.K., at least lobbyists in the U.S. have had to register. It doesn't matter whether they are uh, working for a company or representing a company as a third-party agent. They have to report uh, the amount of money that they spend as part of their work. The problem is uh, the regulations don't go nearly far enough, even in the U.S., uh, and the proposals that I've, I've heard about in the U.K. certainly don't go nearly far enough either. One of the problems is that in the U.S. you get into the issue of protecting freedom of speech and much of what is done in the guise, I guess you would say, of influence peddling uh, is often said to be protected by the First Amendment to the, uh, of the U.S. Constitution. So it's, it's difficult to, uh, to approach how do you regulate lobbying. The citizens have to demand much greater transparency and uh, much greater uh, reporting of influence peddling. That will begin to change things. But we've, we've not got nearly the, the kinds of laws in the books in either country that will get us to where we need to be. And specifically, what kind of measures would be needed to improve transparency? What I have seen here is that uh, the people who are hired by big corporations and other special interests are able to circumvent the laws that are on the books. Uh, it's perfectly legal to engage in a lot of these public relations practices to influence public opinion and lawmakers because there's really been no true congressional inquiry into how it takes place, and, and the public is largely unaware of it. The first step is to have some government investigations into uh, the extent of this influence peddling and what the consequences are. Uh, and then I think lawmakers then need to determine well, what are the appropriate steps to begin to regulate them. Definitely, there needs to be a focus on how do you uh, approach uh, the regulation of uh, some of these public relations practices that are uh, very much are the dark arts and that work against the, 
best interest of the citizens of the country. And if that's piqued your interest, Karen's Future is now available on bmj.com. And Wendell has a book out, Deadly Spin, an insurance company insider, speaks out on how corporate PR is killing healthcare and deceiving Americans. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking menopause, HRT and breast cancer. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.